Well, good morning, all. I would give you lots more time to uh, talk and such, but this is the, the, the season finale. You know, two-part, no, the season finale here, or you've got a, we've got a lot to, that the Lord has for us, I think, today uh, to finish up and then to recap what uh, God has brought us through. This is actually lesson 46, so three years' worth of going through the Kings in the fall season um, to, to come at this, to, to this point. But we'll be in Second Chronicles chapter 36, and then a lot of passages in Jeremiah that I'll display for us. So let's pray and trust ourselves to God's care today. Father, we're thankful that your plans are always being accomplished in this world and that we can have uh, implicit and abiding faith and hope in you. The reality is life does not work out as we plan, but that's okay. Um, It is not our plans that are so great and so lofty and so noble that they have to be achieved. We live in a world that tells us to aspire to our dreams, to make our way in life, and to follow our own hearts. And yet, your word reminds us that our hearts actually swerve aside into things that are not appropriate for us or ways that are not best. And so we have the great confidence, even as we conclude a series like this one on the kings of Israel, that you are directing all things according to your good purposes and counsel, and you're directing them with power so that your people never need fear but can walk with you. So cause us to see your, the greatness of your name in today's lesson, and may we continue to follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We tend to like the end of a story at least if the, the story turns out the way it's supposed to. You know, the guy gets the girl, uh, and you know, maybe there's uh, some mean guy that comes into play somewhere along the line, and we're like, no, 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 not him. And then the process goes on, you know, Hallmark traditional type movie. Or, or you get into the more active type of stories, whether in print or on screen, where, you know, action things that guys like and combats and things like that that turn out well in the end. Sometimes the story doesn't turn out well. And when we end the lesser kings, it's not on a high note. And yet even God's design and how he ends certain portions of his word are actually helpful for us. So a little teaser, a little bit thrown out to you ahead of time right here at the beginning. The fact that this grand contour of Israel's history has taken a turn and has gone into this massive slide from which to this day Israel has not really recovered yet. We understand they came back from the captivity in accordance with the word of the Lord. And we understand that there were some moderately good times under Nehemiah and Ezra. We grasp that. But Israel has not returned to some uh, point of centrality and ascendancy in accordance with so many of the prophetic passages of Scripture. So the decline has been long. And it's instructive to us because our entire theme has been faith through and through. Faith in daily life. Faith persisting through the ups and downs of life. And sometimes in the lives that we experience and face, those downturns are prolonged. And they may last even to the very point of our death. But, oh, if we could go into all the prophecies and say one day there will be a turn. 
One day, God will reverse all of this disaster that he has declared and brought on Israel and all of the scorn and the shame that Israel has experienced because of its sin. That day is still to come. And a day is coming when the hardships of our lives, no matter how long they last, a few months, a few years, decades, or even to the point of death, God will reverse it all. We have that hope. But such is not fully the testimony of today, because we're in the last king of Judah, the last one really appointed before the land goes into complete and utter captivity and desolation in Second Chronicles 36. Verse 10 tells us, in the spring of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon. Who's the him? It's Zedekiah. And he brought him to Babylon with the precious vessels of the house of the Lord and made his brother, or this is another king, Jehoiachin rather, made his, his brother Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign and reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. So now all of the goods of the temple are despoiled. How do you carry on temple worship if you don't have all the items that you're supposed to have according to the law to carry out that worship? Judah is left in desolation. And at this point, verse 12, Zedekiah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And this is the beginning of the testimony of the Lord on the life of Zedekiah. Years ago, I saw part of a PBS series on the Victory Garden. Anybody ever seen that one? Okay, I was hooked. Did you know you can throw a few leaves together with kitchen waste and in less than one hour have huge mounds of rich compost to grow the largest, most perfect pest and disease-free vegetables without work? Well, that's what the Victory Garden showed. I think they live in a different place in the country, must be, than we live down here, where the topsoil is about this thick, if anything at all. I remember the shocking reality when I started creating real compost. How much leafage and organic matter does it take? Well, we collect our leaves. We, we initially just rake them off the yard and dump them in what we call the lane by our house. It's just this open area between there's a tree row and a tree row, and it just, nothing grows in there, so dump all the leaves there. But then you have to go get another tarp later on in the season and rake the leaves that are now wet and saturated from winter rains onto those tarps and drag them about 140 yards behind the barns to the compost bins. And the compost bins are eight feet by eight feet by four feet deep. And you, you, this tarp is now dragged partway in. And then you grab the back and you dump the whole thing in, right? You fill it up four feet. No, you actually fill it up six feet. So it's all mounded up. And in a few weeks' time, that six feet turns into about three feet. So you fill it up again to six feet and... A few weeks later, that turns into three feet. And you keep filling this up four or five times, and you're throwing all the banana peels and all the kitchen waste of every imaginable type, apple cores, and not meat scraps. We have enough vermin in our area. Don't want them digging through our compost pile. But every bit of organic matter that we can find goes into those compost bins, and you end up with essentially a 20-foot column of organic material over a year's time turns into about one foot 
of finished compost. And in the process, there's some interesting things going on. A lot of rot. And the rot matches exactly what God says about this era in Judah's history. Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 8. Remember that our text just ended, even just these few verses, with the fact that Jeremiah is pronouncing the word of the Lord to Zedekiah, and Zedekiah is stiff-arming it. So what is God's opinion of the people of Judah in this time period? Thus says the Lord... Like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. Question, anybody dig stuff out of the compost pile to eat? Not unless you're a raccoon or an opossum. But humans don't raid compost piles, generally speaking. Why not? Because the stuff that makes it into the compost pile is the worst of the worst. You know, we keep a little bin in the kitchen and dump everything in there and then run it out periodically. That was one of my jobs yesterday that somehow didn't get done. But I did a lot of other things. Okay? And then one of my children in particular, we tried to assign this to, oh, just go dump the compost bin. And it's, you know, grossing out and gagging. I'm like, come on. You're about to turn 18. You really don't need to still be grossing out over a little bit of compost. But compost is gross, isn't it? God looks at his people, his people, and says, you're rotten to the core. There's nothing left to do with rotten vegetables and rotten fruits other than just throw it out. And so God is throwing away his people in this tragic record that we have. Our final text from the Lesser Kings of Israel is an effective capstone to our series because it urges, since the fruit of unbelief is rotten, the ultimate outcome, the product of disbelieving God is rottenness of person, of personality, of who you are. You need to nurture a vibrant faith in God. Nurture. Nurturing is different. Nurture is active. Nurture means you're not just letting life unfold. It means you're taking care of something. You're making sure it is growing. It is alive. That's exactly what the word vibrant means. So Zedekiah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Really, that's all we need to know. But 2 Chronicles 36 describes Judah's sin in greater detail, depicting three broad categories of wrongdoing that our inclinations bend toward. And the entire book of Jeremiah works out these three basic categories of sin. This didn't strike me as that um, when I was doing my initial preparation for this lesson, 2 Chronicles 36. But it just so happened that my reading this past week covered all the book of Jeremiah. And in the process of reading it, I'm like, that's it. That's exactly what's going on in Zedekiah's own era. The whole book of Jeremiah works it out in detail. So to begin with, 2 Chronicles 36.13 tells us that Zedekiah also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. That is, Zedekiah had vowed by the Lord his allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah was still going to be a king, but he was going to remain a vassal king. And instead, he stiffens his neck and hardened his heart 
against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. So the first rottenness that we see about our unbelief is that unbelief brings the rottenness of obstinate rebellion. Where have we seen hardness of heart most in the scriptures up to this point? We know it's going to be true of Israel and Judah here, but that phrasing, hardness of heart, hardness of heart, hardness of heart, was used about somebody else. Pharaoh, where God does his mighty works that are evidence that he alone is God. And Pharaoh stiffens against him and is obstinate. I will not relent. I will not obey. I will not turn. I will do my own way. Because as soon as I relent, as soon as I give in, as soon as I obey, somebody else has charge of life. And this God has the right to command who I am and what I do. When we don't trust God, unbelief festers inside of us and produces an obduracy or obstinacy of heart that is no longer willing to follow his plans. This hardness is going to show up all throughout, again, the book of Jeremiah. Commenting on this exact period of Zedekiah's history and Judah's history. King Zedekiah sent to Jeremiah, Pashur, the son of Malchiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Maseiah, saying, Inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us. Oh, wow. Good job, Zedekiah. That's exactly what you needed to do. Send a messenger to the prophet of the Lord and say, O prophet of the Lord, what's God's word? We know we're in trouble because Nebuchadnezzar's outside the gates. What are we supposed to do and what's going to happen? And Jeremiah says, simple. I'm going to give you some of the background, okay? We can't read all of Jeremiah. Lots of details from Jeremiah. But Jeremiah says, simple. Open the gates, walk out of the city, and surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. Never mind. And Zedekiah turns around and goes exactly the opposite direction. In fact, over and over again, in Jeremiah, Zedekiah sends an emissary. What are we supposed to do, Jeremiah? What are we supposed to do? And then they accuse Jeremiah of lying. God didn't tell you to tell us to do that. You're some kind of anti-Judean rabble-rouser. You, you, just, you want to see us all dead. That's what you want, Jeremiah. Punk. Where's your patriotism? And Jeremiah's like, it's the word of the Lord. They harden themselves against the word of the Lord. Why? Where does that hardness come from? It doesn't come out of thin air. Hardness like that obstinacy when God says... I put my finger on a problem of your life, and you say, no, not that one. That kind of obstinacy comes from a rottenness of unbelief that we're allowing to go uncured and and festering in our souls. What about this one? A few chapters later, Jeremiah 34, 8 through 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them, that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew his brother. And they obeyed. (sighs) That's what we needed to hear. They obeyed. 
all the officials, all the people who entered into the covenant, that everyone would be set, would set flee, free his slave, male or female, so they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they'd set free and brought them into subjugation as slaves. You literally have, in this instance, they're going to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, what are we supposed to do? Follow the law? God already told you that while you can take slaves from the surrounding nations when they come against you in battle, you cannot enslave Israel. You cannot enslave your brother. He can sell his energies to you for a period of time, seven years, at which point he goes out free. But you cannot treat your brothers like you treat the pagans. And the people for decades now, centuries now, have been defying the word of the Lord. And so Jeremiah tells them what to do, and they go, okay, 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 we, since we promised, we'll set them free. And then they immediately turned around and enslaved them again. Because they set them free but retained the debt, and then they came to you and said, can you now pay the debt? And you say, I can't pay the debt yet. Well, come back as a slave. And by force and by violence, they're taking the people back again into captivity. And this is their own people defying the Lord and his word. Three chapters later, King Zedekiah sent for him and received him. The king questioned him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from the Lord? And Jeremiah said, There is. Then he said, You shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. Jeremiah also said to King Zedekiah, What wrong have I done to you or your servants or this people that you put me in prison? So you, you bring to him secretly and you try to hide it. What's the word of the Lord? And when you don't like it, you put him in prison? Obstinacy. Obstinacy of heart. We don't believe that God is who he claims to be or is doing what he claims he will do. One chapter later, King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. The king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, Jeremiah's kind of got him figured out by this point, right? Jeremiah says to Zedekiah, if I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? If I give you counsel, you won't listen to me. Oh, yeah, 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 I will, I will. No, you won't. No, I promise, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. No, you won't. The obstinacy of a human heart that is disbelieving God's promise is something, in a sense, that you say can't be cured. Yes, it can be cured by the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel. But as long as we hold on to our unbelief, we are merely rotten fruit. I once watched an owner wrestling with a dog who was tugging on a rag. And uh, the dog really wanted to, to play, and maybe this was part of a play, so maybe the analogy breaks down. But the owner was taking the rag and then throwing it, and then the dog had a joyful time chasing it. But then the dog wouldn't quite give it up. I'm like, if you, just, if you give it up, then I can play with you again. And it's like, no, there's a fight and a struggle here going on. Such is the nature of our hearts. And I would say we never really, in a sense, outgrow it unless we continue to yield ourselves to God, because life is full of brand new challenges. Every corner that we face, you graduate from college, and it's 
the challenge of finding the right job. Maybe it was the challenge of finding a person to spend the rest of your life with. And then there are challenges of where you go and what churches to attend. And there are challenges of deaths in the family and sicknesses and job losses and other... And it just rolls one challenge into another. And it seems like we never learn. It's like God, God will do what even we need and expect him to do. But instead we fight him. And we won't relinquish control of our lives in a way that our unbelief itself is damaging and destructive. It's rotten. Well, back to our main text, 2 Chronicles 36. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Unbelief brings the rottenness of unfaithful idolatry. Not just an obstinacy of unbelief, but also we're replacing God with something else. And all throughout the Old Testament, God points to idols as anything, as you know, that's replacing God in our affections or in our hope or in our trust. Any of those. Sometimes it's that we love something in the place of God or more than God. Sometimes it's that we trust something in the place of God and more than God. Be it a political system or a particular person who's running for office or the security that we can provide ourselves with insulations against harm. Unbelief brings a rottenness of unfaithful idolatry and they reinforce each other. And we see this in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7, 16 to 18, as for you, do not pray for this people. This is God speaking directly to Jeremiah. Do not lift up a cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me. I will not hear you. Do not see what they, or sorry, do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. This queen of heaven is Inanna or Ishtar. We actually know who she is. Inanna or Ishtar, a goddess of love, war, fertility, and political power. And the people had taken to worshiping the things that the surrounding nations are worshiping. Some of the gods were really grotesque. Inanna, a little bit less so, okay? She's, she's roughly corresponding to something like Diana of the Ephesians or Aphrodite kind of merged together, um, uh, various goddesses of the Greeks that they would later worship. But Ishtar, the Babylonian version, or Inanna, the uh, more Syriac and um, Assyrian version of the same deity, someone who promised Prosperity and power. And as soon as you worship prosperity and power, you're essentially worshiping Inanna or Ishtar, a substitute that Satan has set forward. Well, closer to the end of the book, Jeremiah 44. Here's how the people respond to Jeremiah's rebuke. But we will do everything that we have vowed. We will make offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we did. Both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials, and the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. 
But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we've lacked everything and been consumed by the sword and famine. So here's the process of human thinking. (laughs) We still face it today, by the way. It runs through every political culture. Okay. We do evil, and we do evil, and we saturate ourselves with evil, and we persist in evil, and God's like, warning, 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 disaster's coming, stop. We continue to do evil. Hey, I'm telling you, I'm going to bring judgment on you. And then some righteous person arises, and there's there's a little bit of a revival. Revival in your community, revival in your church, revival in potentially even the whole nation. That's Josiah, right? But what had God already said back here? Your sin is so great that I will not avert the judgment. Delay it, yes. If you choose to do what is right, you will postpone it. But the judgment, as we talked last week, is the train. It's already on the tracks. It will not be stopped. So there's a period of righteousness or restoration or repentance or revival. And as soon as the people go back to sin, judgment comes. And it's within months. Because as we said, it, and the testimony of Scripture is within six months of facing Pharaoh Necho and Josiah is killed at Megiddo. Nebuchadnezzar has already come down, defeated Egypt, and is now at the gates of Jerusalem. Six months of, of the people's repudiating their repentance. Did you get that? Like over here, got warning, warning, warning. Okay, we, we will repent of our sin. And now the people are repenting of repentance. Which means what about their repentance? It was fake in the first place. And they're sitting over here in this third position going, God brought judgment, or rather, calamity occurred. (gasps) What was the most recent thing that we did? Repent. So, calamity must be the result of repentance. We're going right back to all of our wickedness and our idolatry over here because when we were wicked and idolatrous over here, things were rosy for us. And you're like, no. Don't you understand that God is so patient? He allowed you, in this case, hundreds of years of disobedience leading up to the point of judgment, but it was not the repentance that led to the disaster. It was those hundreds of years of disobedience. And I will say our culture proves that we do this in our hearts because our culture routinely looks back to something that the, uh, the immediate president did right at the very end of his presidency and is like, ah, that's the cause of whatever happened right here today, right now. And you're like, wait, there's a long, I mean, economic cycles are broader and God's cycles of judgment are much broader than that. The disasters that occur have very complex causes and are usually due to human sin in some way. So the same happens later on in the chapter of 44 of Jeremiah where the people protest against the Lord and the Lord says, that's it. You, from the people who were this obstinate and this idolatrous, my name will never again be pronounced by any of them. They will die in Egypt as pagans. study of ancient deities reveals that these gods and goddesses were personifications of human desires. Um, There's a huge list that I wrote down. (laughs) 
It's fun. You can get Wikipedia, gods and goddesses of the ancient world. And you're like, okay, so what were the gods and goddesses of? Love, war, marriage, celibacy. So if, if you wanted to be married, you, you had your, your deity. And if you were not married, you had your deity. I mean, it was, it was great. It worked out real well. By the way, they're really crude sometimes. So there is one Greco-Roman deity, the goddess of marriage, that if you pledged yourself to the other goddess, the goddess of celibacy, the goddess of marriage may come and, and torture you, torment you, kill you, cause all sorts of disaster for you. You're like, what am I supposed to do then? Because if you follow this one, and, and, but what if I follow the goddess of marriage and the goddess of celibacy is after you? So you're like, what a horrible situation. They're goddesses and gods of feasts, wine, financial prosperity, political power, home and hearth, security, family, country, broader economy, grain, fertility, Specific trades like shipbuilding, metalworking, art, speech, and language. In other words, ancient deities were the attempt to control and secure a good life by any mechanism other than following God. Did you catch that? The attempt to secure, to guarantee, to control a good life by any mechanism other than following God. Now, we all know we have our trades but it's in the process of following God that we are computer programmers and nurses and engineers and so many other things. It is not that I'm an engineer in order to secure something for myself. Otherwise, it's idolatry. Well, the passage concludes with this testimony in, in 15 and 16, of, uh, uh, verses 15 and 16 of Second Chronicles 36. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against the peoples until there was no remedy Unbelief brings the rottenness of indifferent scorning. Like this, Jeremiah 28. Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke them. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. So what's what's the situation here? God told Jeremiah, make a yoke, wear it, and go around proclaiming, submit, accept the yoke of Babylon, take it up on your shoulders, because God has built that yoke, and the yoke will persist no matter what you do. Bear it. Not necessarily eagerly, but at least obediently and submissively because you cannot escape it. And a false prophet shows up and he's like, forget you. You can almost see him spatting. Forget you. Grabs the yoke that Jeremiah is wearing. Smash. I don't know how heavy it was. Did he have to use a saw? It doesn't say. He broke it in some way in front of all. And thus says the Lord, when he's making up his own testimony, thus says the Lord, two years, Nebuchadnezzar is going to lose control of all the nations, not just ours, but all the nations. And Jeremiah's response is fascinating in that passage. He basically goes, great. If that's the word of the Lord, fantastic. Problem. It's not the word of the Lord. He's like, I would love for that to happen. I, I would be eager for the Lord to proclaim freedom 
and restoration of the people. The problem is he has not so proclaimed. Jeremiah comes back a couple days later and says, you have broken a yoke of wood and God will make in its place a yoke of iron. You will not escape. So all of this scorning, which is, again, traditional habitual response of the unbelieving human heart that kicks against and pushes against God's plans and God's messengers, comes to nothing, comes to disaster. Jeremiah 32.3, For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned Jeremiah, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I am giving the city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. So obstinate against God's word, like we saw in the beginning, but now scorning God's word and actually attacking the messenger. We have a saying in our language, right? What do we not do with the messenger? Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what was told to me. But since a world, a wicked world, cannot lash out at God directly, they strike at his messengers instead. Don't find it surprising when the world doesn't like us. Hopefully it's evidence that we are doing what is right and actually following the Lord. Jeremiah 38, one more example. Now Shephatiah, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pasher, Jukal, the son of Shemaliah, and Pasher, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. Thus says the Lord, he who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence, but he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Then the officials said to the king, let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. And King Zedekiah said, behold, he's in your hands. The king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. There was no water in the cistern, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. Uh, Question. Whose hands are weaker? The soldier who's a little bit discouraged but obeys the Lord, or the soldier who is dead? True question. Because what they're saying about Jeremiah is you're weakening the hands of the soldiers. But all those soldiers are going to be dead. That's pretty weak. Going out to them has your own life as a booty. Obeying the word of the Lord means you retain life and opportunity and the future. It might not be the future that you had scripted, the story that you wanted to write for life, but obedience to the Lord does result in the story that he's telling, and the opposite. They accused Jeremiah of treason, attacking him and mocking him and disregarding the word of the Lord. How foolish is that? Many years ago, uh, shortly after my wife and I were married, I had a, a job at a paint company here in town. And my, one of my responsibilities, besides stocking the store and getting paint ready for customers, uh, we ha- were, had a lot of big commercial clients, and I would put five-gallon buckets of paint in the back of a big delivery van and take it all over the county. 
sometimes outside the county, took them up to the Brevard um, Music Center one time, Brevard College, and delivered thousands of gallons of paint to them. Um, but one incident occurred when I drove to a new school construction way out in Graycourt. And I, as I drove up to the construction, I'm looking at it going, um, there's no paved road. It was a complete disaster. It had been very rainy that summer, and you could see the mud was uh, bad. <laughs> and I had to go uphill through mud to get to the school and then start delivering the paint inside the school from there. Well, I, somehow I got in and drove partway up the hill, slipping and sliding, and you know how you do in, in deep mud. But I got in and parked the van and then took you know, two gal five-gallon buckets at a time because I couldn't drive a handcart through mud. So I'm sinking in the mud and taking two five-gallons at a time into the school back and forth and back and forth while several thousand gallons of paint at 10 pounds plus per gallon are, are pushing the van down. Well, finally got time to leave, and I got in the van and started, you know, I'm going nowhere. I was sunk past the axles in mud. And I'm like, great. I'm uh, 40, 45 minutes away from my job. I'm sitting out here in Gray Court. I'm going to starve to death in the middle of a construction site. There's nothing here. And, and the guys around me kind of, you could see the other construction workers laughing and pointing. And finally, one of them saunters up. He's like, you need some help? <laughs> I'm like, was it obvious? He's like, well, okay, I'll get into it. And he got into a full-size, not even, not even a skid steer or something small like that. He got into a full-size uh, bucket loader or something like that. And he drove into these van with tires, you know, that come up here like this. And he drove up to my van and just... Oh, he was good. He put his scoop right under the back bumper and just lifted. He's like, okay, now go. And I drove real slowly, and he just kept my back high enough that we could get out of the, the ground. It was fun. Good time. I really wouldn't wish that on anyone, but Jeremiah's enemies did it to him on purpose. Sink him in the mire and then leave him to die. The people did not care what the truth was. The book of Jeremiah shows that they shopped for prophets who would tell them exactly what they wanted to hear. And here are what a number of the other prophets predicted. So maybe vote with me. Did it happen or not happen? Here are what the other prophets said. Babylon will bypass Jerusalem and never come against the city. And, well, well, okay, so he came against the city, but he won't conquer it. And... Well, okay, he conquered the city, but God would restore the captives within a few months. No. Well, okay, so the captives didn't return, but Nebuchadnezzar would never come back. I, I, these are literal prophecies made by Jeremiah's opponents. No. Oh, well, okay, so he came back, but he wouldn't overthrow the city again. Wrong again. Well, okay, so he overthrew the city again, but he wouldn't conquer Egypt, so we're going to flee to Egypt. Jeremiah gets in Egypt and he says, actually, Nebuchadnezzar is going to set his throne right here. I'm going to bury this little thing in the pavement stones. Nebuchadnezzar's throne is going to be right here and he's going to bring judgment on Egypt. Well, okay, so he conquered Egypt, but, and it goes on. Unbelief is fundamentally stupid. She's, she's voting for me to say so. 
Unbelief is wrong, isn't it, Adeline? Fundamentally stupid because it's fundamentally false, and yet those committed to falsehood will always remain here. That the fruit of unbelief is rotten, so we must nurture a vibrant faith in God. So where have we been? Three years to cover these kings. And on this little chart, we have those who are assassinated, those who died in in battle by violence or were self-inflicted, and those who were taken captive, all scattered throughout this, all by God's plan and by God's design. And in the time, we have covered the following. Can we run through this really fast? All the way back when we laid the groundwork for this series by saying God anticipated while Israel was still marching around in the wilderness that Israel would ask for a king. And we began with trust God enough to learn and obey his previous commandments. Trust him enough to accept his rule in a less than ideal fallen world. Trust him by seeking his counsel first and always. Trust him by accepting the effectiveness of his word Because his word is inviolable, trust him by obeying every clear command. Trust him by rejecting deception because he's the God who sees. Because God resists spiritual entropy, set your heart on seeking him. Because he determines victory, rely on him. Because faith sees every opportunity as God-given, sees the opportunities to do the right thing. Seeking the Lord requires an exclusive hope, so set aside other sources of ultimate hope. Genuine faith endures in time of great distress, our 14th lesson. So rest on the God who saves. How about 20? Faith seeks the only advice in this whole world, in this entire universe that actually matters. So value God's counsel. I love this one, 24. God's dominion endures. Boy, that's hope in any generation. So the reign of the wicked calls for insight, not capitulation. We don't give up living the Christian life just because we're surrounded by evildoers. What about since well begun is half done? Live in faith today. In other words, start. Start. God expects his people to start. We may not have the end in mind. We may not be able to predict the future, but start doing what is right. That is the life of faith. Because evil hastens a nation's decline, our 32nd lesson. Look for opportunities to be faithful in a dark age. It doesn't matter what people are doing out there. You be faithful. Or because not as bad is not good enough. Oh, stop comparing ourselves with the world. I know that we're not as bad as the worst of the wicked, but we're bad apart from God's work. So serve the Lord alone. And then more recent ones, all the way up to 40, because the way of the world is a way of ruin, follow God through faith. Everything else results in disaster. We have hope. Unbelieving autonomy, just a couple weeks ago, brings bondage, not freedom. So guard your faith in God. The chief lesson from the lesser kings of Israel and Judah. Everything we do is the working out of a faith given primarily or at its chief moment in salvation when we trusted Jesus Christ 
unto eternal life. But that faith ought never end, be debased, be diminished, but rather always be reinforced, built up, and pursued. This is God's testimony to us from the kings. Father, we're thankful for both today but, and, and the testimony of your word today from Chronicles and, and Jeremiah. But we're also especially grateful for the years that you've given to us together to cover these kings. We will confess that our, our greatest problem is we just don't trust you. We don't trust you deeply enough. We don't trust you consistently enough. We don't trust you uh, thoroughgoingly or with absolute loyalty. We divide our faiths and our allegiances. And while we would wish to pledge to you our faith and vow to you that we will never fall away, it is not our strength. It is not the insistence of our minds or the sincerity of our hearts in this moment that matters. It is the strength of your power to keep your people from failing. So since Jesus Christ will secure us until that great day when we stand in your presence, May he secure us today in the faith, and may we walk with you as we ought. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.